0: Hi, I'm Lisa Kennedy and you're listening to The Bra and the Brave. This podcast celebrates the creative and the courageous. I am fascinated by those who are talented, forward-thinking and inquisitive. Sharing their stories, wisdom and everything in between, The Bra and the Brave is about people and their passions. So on to today's episode. <laughs> well, This is a lovely way to start a Monday morning I have to say. (laughs) I am delighted to be joined by an actual published author. Say what? (laughs) I'm delighted to be speaking to Sunali Misra and we actually met online. Yeah I was doing um, a workshop for Uh, YWCA. A very excellent workshop, I have to say. (laughs) Thank you so much. That's really kind. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I mean, lots of the people that have been on the podcast recently, especially obviously during lockdown and whatnot, um, I haven't met them in real life. But um, I felt like I'd had more interaction with you because I'd spent that hour in your lovely workshop. And yeah, I've I've attended so many webinars and workshops. I'm sure, like everybody else, has during lockdown. But yours really stayed with me because of the exercise that you did on failure. Where did that come from? Was that just something that you had done personally, and then you thought that was quite useful? Like, where did the idea for that come?
1: Um, I'll be honest. I actually did like a little uh, search through the internet to look for exercises. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, so I combined a few ideas that I saw online. Um, The people there had spoken about, I mean, they were openly sharing those exercises for everyone to do. Of course. And they had spoken about what great feedback they'd received. And then obviously I adapted it to what I was presenting and what I was talking about. So like the terminology and some of the steps, those were obviously kind of customized. But yeah, it was kind of a mixture of everything.
0: Yeah, but it was like, it perfectly complemented your workshop because you were sharing part of your latest book, which is (laughs) 21 Fantastic Failures and What Their Stories Teach Us, which I am in the process of reading and loving. Oh, yeah. Also, you have also taught me that I actually didn't know that you can download Kindle books even though you don't have a Kindle. So every day is a school day. Yeah, uh, a lot
1: of people (laughs) have come up to me and said, oh, why isn't your ebook available somewhere else? I don't have a Kindle. And I'm like, you can just download the Kindle app and you can read it on your phone if you want.
0: (laughs) Genuinely didn't know that. But I was so compelled to read your book. I was like, let's see if we can make this happen. So again, Google our friend. I Googled it and I was like what you can actually do that so yeah so I'm I'm reading your book and loving it and we will get there but I tend to work chronologically on these podcasts I don't, I don't know why but it, it tends to work out nicely so I was on your lovely website learning more about you because I like to do my research and you were brought up in Delhi mm-hmm, I was yeah I've
1: lived there for um 26 years I want to say yeah so the past four years almost I've been in Scotland
0: yeah, we both have something in common because you studied English at university in Delhi.
1: Yeah, I did, yeah.
0: And and how was that experience?
1: Um, it was great actually. I, I went to like a really good school as well. My parents have been really supportive. They tried to send me to the best educational institutions. But I think the school that I went to was kind of posh. Right. And everyone came from really comfortable backgrounds. So I was kind of I lived in a bubble for most of my life. And then I went to this very like liberal arts, like very left wing, where um, known that university is known to be very very feminist and kind of like leftist. And my eyes were just, and my mind was just like burst open to the, all of these new ideas. And it was kind of funny because I came from like almost the lower rung <laughs> at my school in terms of like socioeconomic class, because everyone was so wealthy. And then I shifted to this university and I was among the privileged few there.
0: Right.
1: And I just met people from all parts of India, even some were from abroad, like from different socioeconomic classes, even like different caste systems, which was new yeah. for me. And obviously, again, I'm very privileged in that way and came to learn about other people and their experiences there. Um, some people didn't even speak Hindi, which... I came from North India so everyone around me did speak Hindi all the time and it was really interesting so and my professors were lovely, the classes were lovely, I had a great time honestly, I don't think I would be the person or the writer that I am today if I hadn't gone
0: to that uh, institution, if I hadn't done that degree. Wow and was it just that a love of books, a love of reading, a love of storytelling that brought you to studying English?
1: Yeah, I've so my mum actually worked in publishing right. when I was a kid. She ah. did kind of like almost part-time work, I guess she did she was in sales. So I was always surrounded by books when I was growing up. <clears throat> like I taught myself to read actually because it's really funny um I saw in Hollywood movies that your parents are supposed to read you to sleep
0: okay. and
1: I was really influenced by that. So I actually pulled my mom to bed and I'm like, okay, you're going to read me to sleep today. <laughs> I love this. And uh, my mom, oh bless her heart, she has this thing where she'll read like a page or two and she'll immediately fall asleep. Whether <laughs> that's a book, a newspaper article, like whatever. <laughs> the number of times I've stepped into the living room, seen her lying on the sofa with like the newspaper like just fallen on her face. <laughs> Um, so I we had a few nights of that where she would read me like a page, and she would start snoring, and I'm just sitting there going, "What happens next? You haven't really told me what this happens next." What happens in the movies, mom. <laughs> No, it doesn't. They never tell you about this in the movies. Um, so I just like I think on like the third or fourth day, I just like took the uh, just took the book from her and tried to like match some of the words with the pictures, and then there were some books in the lots of book sets we had around her. Uh, around the story which had audio cassettes as well really? and then again i would play the audio cassettes and then try to like follow the words on the page
0: oh, a clever cookie <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, but again i wouldn't have been able to do that if i didn't have those things around me yes, and, and all those resources around me so i i thank like I, i'll be forever indebted to my mom um to encouraging this for encouraging this reading habit and yeah my father and my mother both Used to read a bit and they should write a bit as well. So, and they were really encouraging of both me and my brother to pursue different extracurricular activities. Mm. So, I started writing, I think, around the age of eight, I want to say. Right. And yeah, my f- family is really fond of technology as well. So, this was like in 99 or something. And we had a computer at the house, which is kind of unheard of. And um, yeah, so I wrote my first ever story, which was like outside the school system, just for my own you know, just for my own amusement, I wrote that on my computer.
0: Can you remember what that story was about?
1: Yeah, I can actually, I can even remember the title. It's called The Garden Behind the Mountain. It was kind of like this fantasy fairy tale folklore kind of thing. It was about these two brothers who were farmers. And one day they went out and they found this secret garden behind a particular mountain that no one really went beyond. And it had all of these magical creatures and some princesses and that particular area needed saving and the two brothers saved them and then they married the princesses or whatever. They lived happily ever after, (laughs) as one does.
0: Oh (laughs) Oh my goodness, but that's tapping into that imagination at such a young age and to be able to put that into words, like to formulate a story and for it to make sense, you obviously just had a draw towards writing and producing something of your own but that's quite that's quite a big deal at such a young age
1: yeah I I don't know words have always come easily to me whether it's like talking um I was always known to be a chatterbox um I remember my dad once joined this really big fancy multinational company and his boss from he's like a Danish boss came to our house for like a dinner and all of us were extremely nervous and supposed to be on our best behavior and I was around 10 years old. And I sat right next to him, and my parents tell me the story even today. And I would just like talk that man's ear off, <laughs> and my dad was really scared because that guy was super fancy, and my, this was like my dad's just brand new job. And I just turned to him at one point and I said, "Okay, I'm going to tell you four jokes," and then he just starts laughing. Okay, I'll wait for your four jokes, and my brother, poor thing, he was just sitting there really silently on his best behavior and yeah to compliment my brother at one point he said yes if um what did he say if talking is silver silence is golden and I got kind of like offended by that at that
0: point (laughs) must be something about folk that study English
1: (laughs) yeah no I I can't remember the time in my life and I've shut up really I love being in the spotlight I love the (laughs) attention
0: nothing wrong with that this is the thing I think it's just like that interaction that sharing of information like storytelling I think um it's so important you know whether it's a fictional story or whether it's a true story just engaging with other people and and telling a story is like a total art form and whether you do it in writing or whether Mm. you do it you know sitting around a dinner table the sharing of information the sharing of imagination is so important
1: yeah I think It's been, I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one invoicing this, but it's been a thorn in my side that people will refuse to invest in the arts and they'll keep undermining the arts. But I don't think we could have gone through, what is it now, six, seven months of the lockdown um, without the arts? What are we doing? We're sitting at home. You and I recording this podcast where we're discussing stories. Um, I was reading and watching shows yesterday. We're watching musicals that are being made free for a limited amount of time online they're all the arts and they do feed our soul and then people will turn around and say oh yeah don't need to invest in them don't need to encourage them at school you need to study these 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 subjects because that's going to assure you you know like um a bright future I don't know what that means a bright future I guess money <laughs> because obviously there's some the money in the arts but then again that's the system yeah. that's made it so that there's no the money in the
0: arts. so true I mean like I talk about this a lot on the podcast and there has been a lot of people on the podcast that are involved with the arts and just how much it enriches their lives and the the work that they've put out there whether it be music or art or you know, writing, it how much it enriches other people's lives and just that the value it has. And I think, like you say, during lockdown, we've all realised how much we appreciate the arts. You think about how many concerts and stuff that people were doing online and people were trying to collaborate mm-hmm. and, make. you know, people were still desperate to make and create and play because that, like you say, it feeds the soul, it makes the soul sing. When you had done your d- degree, w- was it always the plan to then further your your kind of studies and move abroad and move here to Scotland like what did you have a plan or has it just been very much like you've been reactive to opportunities that have come up
1: um it's kind of a mix of both actually so there's this neo-colonial hang-up I guess in India where you still see the UK as one of the places to go um I don't growing up and telling my friends oh yeah if I never end up going to the US I'm completely fine but I do need to visit the UK and the rest of Europe wow because you do look at them as cultural centers. Even in my undergrad uh, in English literature, I think, I believe I had nine total papers over three years of education. And only one of them was dedicated to Indian literature, whether that was written directly within the English language, or if it was translated from other Indian languages to English. And they were like, a, one was on like American literature, one was on Afro-Caribbean literature one was like the classics which was Greek Roman and Indian classics but the rest so like more than half was basically British literature right where we studied from like Chaucer onwards I guess so maybe even a bit before that to contemporary so even within our education system it's ingrained that British culture British literature British history is something to be proud of and fond of. But obviously, we have a very weird relationship with the UK because they were also the Imperial Park. Yeah,
0: yep. Mm-hmm. It's,
1: it's, it's a really strange love and hate relationship. Yeah. So when I first came to the UK, which was for so my master's, um, I'm kind of jumping time here. Sorry, chronologically. Nope. So <laughs> <glad you were. laughs> when I first came, I was doing all the touristy points. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, I would love to see the Kohinoor that was taken from India, which was taken from somewhere else, whatever. It's got like a long history to it. And it's part of the Crown Jewels now. And then (laughs) you found out that there's like a 20 or like 25-pound ticket to see it. And apparently you sit on like I could be totally wrong about this, but you could sit sit on like a you stand on like a travelator of sorts, and it just zooms you past (laughs) all these jewels, so you see them for like a few seconds. And I was like, um, as an Indian. Where this thing was stolen from originally and no reparations have been made. Do I really want to pay you 25 pounds to yeah. see this particular stone for like a few seconds? Mm, no, not really. I don't think so. <laughs> no. I think I'll be fine if I don't see that and I'll don't pass. That money. Yeah. So it's like a really weird relationship, I guess, that I have with the UK. It's it's kind of what my PhD is on again I'm jumping in time yeah I actually did English literature um, because I wanted to be a writer and somehow it made sense in my head Mm. and my friends would ask me why because like grammar was something that I wanted to work on they're like you're not going to really have a grammar class and I'm like no but I'll you know read other books and I will discuss and analyze things and I think that will help my understanding of how to write as well I don't know if I could like properly explain it then or maybe I'm being a lot more eloquent now than I was (laughs) at that point but my plans have somehow fallen in place so far um so I did the English literature program and then I really actually wanted to come to Edinburgh to study creative writing right so I applied right off after my undergrad which was in 2013 and I got rejected (laughs) Yeah, I got rejected by a professor who still teaches there and actually taught me recently. Um, yeah, so that at that point my fell kind of my world kind of like fell apart and my friends had to send me chocolate and stuff just oh. to get to it. Yeah. yeah, but I couldn't sit restless at home. So I just applied for one or two jobs and I basically got the first job that was offered to me, which was within publishing. It was um It wasn't even as a full-fledged copy editor. It was associate copy editor. That was the designation that I started with at um, a company called Macmillan Publishing Services. And it was just quite dull, the work. At least I found it dull. I'm pretty sure people might find it interesting. Hmm. I was copy editing. um, So just like fixing the grammar here and there uh, for these... Um, like science, like PhD or like MBA kind of. Uh, like. right,
0: okay. Yeah.
1: And I remember the first day that I joined, they just handed me the Chicago Manual of Style, which is like a really, really fat book. And they said, go through this. And I'm like, okay. So I did that for like four days, <laughs> trying not to fall asleep in between, just like going through the book, um, which was really dull at that point, but also a bit interesting because I was always confused about certain things like, hyphens and n dashes and m dashes because i've seen these different symbols i didn't know what they were called i didn't know when they were used so i clarified certain concepts and while that job may have been a bit on the dull side for me it did build a strong foundation and i only worked there for like five months and then i moved to uh, scholastic in india <gasps> as a full-fledged editor this time again that foundation was built upon i worked there for uh two years i believe and um i worked in the educational department for so like worked on um english language books um for different markets but there was like south america canada malaysia singapore australia uh, the uk as well Mm -hmm. india i even edited a dictionary (laughs) which at that point somehow it hadn't registered to me that someone would be sitting there and editing a dictionary but I actually, also did that,
0: which is really interesting. Yes, put that on your bio. Like, who said this is actually? Yeah, I know it was
1: by a British writer as well. So that was just kind of interesting because, um, again, jumping in time here, but when I come to the UK, some people have you know in quotes complimented my English and they've asked me, "Oh, did you learn English when you reached here?" <laughs> um, whereas other friends who are a bit more, um, I guess aware of things yes. would just say. The British friends and they're like, yeah, your English is probably better than mine.
0: (laughs) Oh, just when you were saying about different symbols and stuff, I'm like, oh, you know, friends of mine have said, oh, would you not like tutor like English? I'm like, you kidding on? Like, (laughs) but I'm like, I can't actually believe that I got that. I think they just gave me it for turning up.
1: (laughs) That's the funny thing, though, because I actually grew to be a lot more tolerant when it comes to grammatical mistakes Or if you want to say different kinds of grammar, different kinds of Englishes because of my undergrad degree. I was actually a bit of a snob before that. If I loved correcting people's pronunciation or their typos, it just gave me, I don't know, it just made me feel like really proud in some way or twisted way. But then I did that undergraduate course and I learned that there is no one correct English. Also, especially within India, English language uh, education, English medium education is a thing of privilege. People from the lower sec- socioeconomic classes usually go to uh, government schools. Um, I mean, A, sometimes they can't even afford education, period. Mm-hmm. But if they can, they usually go to like government subsidized schools where you usually learn within um, the regional language over there. And it's only like the fancier schools that teach you through the medium of English. And even then you really need to have the money and the interest to buy English books on the side or be able to watch movies or listen to music or watch shows that really builds up your English. So it's a thing of privilege within India. So for you to scoff at someone else's grammar or the, pr- the pronunciation, you're just kind of being a little shit, to be honest. Yeah,
0: I you're making me think of, I don't know if you saw the program that was on TV the, the last couple of weeks, The Write-Offs. Oh, uh, No, I haven't. Sorry, no. It was really interesting, actually. I think you can get it on catch up. It was um Sandy Topskig, and it was um adults that basically in Britain have just kind of fallen through the cracks and were had varying levels, but a lot of them just had a reading and writing age of like a child. But these are, you know, these were adults with families hmm. and jobs and and just that shame attached Mm -hmm. to not be able to to read and write properly and they set them various challenges and they gave them a tutor each and oh it was one of the most emotional things to see these people do like almost like a spelling bee so they tested them at the start and then they tested them at the end and they'd all improved massively and there was a dad there who you know his young daughter uh, you know had the image of you and your mum your mum well, your mum reading a page to you <laughs> before yeah. But his little girl wanted him to read a bedtime story to her and he wasn't able to. She knew that and she was only she was only small. She knew she was like, Oh yeah, dad, daddy can't read. And you think just that that shame that you're talking about attached to not being able to to pronounce things properly or to form a sentence grammatically correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like but I, I love how you've owned up to that. Like you're saying you realise that, yeah, it's quite a complex thing for people to to, to master.
1: Yeah, honestly, I think if, actually, I don't know, maybe I'm just like shooting in the dark here, but I I like to believe that if you can reasonably present an argument to someone, they will take it on board. But obviously, you see Twitter and the various just like things go down on social media or also Mm -hmm. uh, just generally on TV, on conservative TV, and you realise that that might not be the case. But yeah, I mean, obviously, life's also a learning journey. So I might have come from like a little bubble and like a more conservative space. But then I was exposed to these other ideas. And thankfully, I like to believe I'm open to new ideas. I'm open to admitting that, yeah, I might be wrong. And there might be some, some other ideas and co- concepts out there that I don't know of, but I could benefit from.
0: Yeah, well, every day should be a school day. We should mm-hmm. all be constantly learning. I've had this conversation time and time again, just like you should never stop learning. There's no time in your life where you you should be sitting back going, right, well, I know it all now. I've sussed it. Mm-hmm.
1: No, the day you say that, you know you're definitely wrong.
0: Definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. So throughout your studies and moving to the UK, were you just constantly writing, regardless of what you were doing study wise or career wise were you just constantly writing in the background
1: oh no I'm like oh it's gonna be funny but I'm like horrible at writing (laughs) (laughs) one of the reasons um so I worked for like four years within publishing after that scholastic job I went and worked at Hachette uh which is one of the big five publishers in like a sales or like a product role actually this time around Because I'm not actually, I actually also enjoy maths.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness, that is
1: my nemesis, right? Yeah, I know. I know. I thought it was just a stereotype when people say that people who are into like arts or language are bad at maths. But then I came here and everyone does confess, not everyone, like a lot of people do confess that to me. Um, So I actually do enjoy maths. At school, I, I actually chose like the science stream. So I had physics, chemistry, maths, biology. Um, economics um, mm. English was compulsory yeah so I took that job up I worked there for like a year and a half and then I wanted a break from work so I decided to apply for the master's again and by that point I thought I had improved a little because I'd done this like online writing course as well on Coursera which I would definitely recommend to everyone it's great oh, cool. it's conducted by uh, Wesleyan University in the US yeah and I thought I improved just within those four months of that online course so I thought know the masters might do me like much better so I applied again and this time I got through so I came here and again one of the reasons I did the online course and the reason I did the masters is because I need I need like I need structure I need deadlines oh yeah people telling me that you know you have to do this 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 when it comes to my writing because I can be extremely lazy with it (laughs) So the master's was very, very fruitful because I conceptualized of a brand new novel just for the admissions process, like just for the Ah. application process where they needed, I think it was like a 5,000 word sample they wanted. And I thought of a new novel, thought of like new characters, new plot and wrote that. And I actually really liked it. So I kept working on it through the master's and also did some short stories. But my dissertation was like 20,000 words of that novel, which is... Way more than I've ever written before in my life. Because I had that deadline looming. I actually wrote those 20,000 words, the first draft, within like three or four weeks. No way. <laughs> yeah so I can actually write really quickly
0: <laughs> when the tips are down you get it done yeah
1: I can I, I can get it done I just need someone telling me I need to do this
0: to be fair I, I'm with you on that I'm quite a deadliney person like I choreograph so I'm a, a dancer a choreographer and quite often I will procrastinate for a long time so it'll be ruminating in my head but yeah. actually getting the job done and physically making it happen yeah i can quite often wait till we're like, like on the wire and then i'm like oh yeah i should actually get this done yeah. and it always works out i think like sometimes i berate myself for that and you know i'm like oh you should be more organized and you should be more proactive and you should you should be doing it all the time but i'm like well you know if it's not broke you don't need to fix it
1: yeah i think the problem with like people with, like you and me is that because we're getting by and we might even be doing well <laughs> by procrastinating and doing it at the last minute yeah Oh, we haven't felt maybe the consequences yet, we're like, yeah, we can do this. It's fine. <laughs> I, <like hunting> it. <laughs> I just have a feeling that there's going to come a time when I need to get something done and I can't. Like, I have this fear that I might fall sick mm. or some other emergency might come about and I won't be able to finish that, meet the deadline, and then I will regret everything.
0: <laughs> and then that might be deemed a failure, Snelli. So yeah. And then that would be just such a lovely link to to see what I did there. See what I did there. Yeah, so the sub uh, we are jumping and we can absolutely jump about, but I have jumped straight into the present, and that that is your wonderful book that I mentioned earlier on. What was it about the subject of failure that interests you?
1: So, um, unbeknownst to you, this is actually pretty chronological because I've already spoken a bit about the masters and. I had just submitted my dissertation which again I've talked about right now in August and in September so just the next month I was my mum was visiting and my accommodation contract had run up at the university so instead of like getting another place for a few months I'm like yeah let's just travel um, and live at different places so my mum and I actually got a one bedroom flat on the Isle of Butte for a month.
0: Oh, <laughs> lovely! nice!
1: Yeah, so that was really great. And we were just like chilling there and just roaming around a bit, and you would visit places around us. When someone that I had worked at with Scholastic, who was now working at this Indian publisher called Rupa Publications, and she messaged me, I think, on Facebook. Um, cause I did post about my master's and just generally, you know, my time in the UK on Facebook quite a bit at that point. Hmm. And she said, Hey, I just heard that you're doing this creative writing degree. So you like to write? And I'm like, yeah, I do. Um, and then she says, okay, I'm now working at this company as an assistant, uh, commissioning editor, if I'm to remember her designation, right. And she said, I have this book idea and I'm looking for an author to commission it to. Uh, would you like to write a sample chapter for it and then she told me about the title she told me a bit about the concept and I was obviously jumping at the opportunity but I was a bit hesitant because I hadn't really done nonfiction before that and I told her that that I don't really do non-fiction at least I haven't attempted it so far so she said just give it a shot I've gone through a few writers already and I didn't like their work just see if this is something that you could do and I'm like okay so um she sent me like a tentative list of like a few people that she had already come up with for the book and then she asked me to add on to it which I did and like also changed the list a bit and then um just to make take like a safe choice because um I think everyone in the publishing world but also generally just loves Steve Jobs like Apple issues aside people love reading about him there's so many movies about him documentaries about him so I picked Steve Jobs for my sample chapter um Did a lot of research, watched lots of documentaries, saw lots of his interviews, uh, read up on him. And then I wrote a sample chapter. And because I like somehow always just taking kind of like a weird creative twist to things. I presented his story almost like a fable for adults. It starts off with uh, the title and his name. And I just like picked a quote, which was relevant to that particular lesson that I was teaching. So I ran through his biography. Um, like quite quickly honestly because each chapter is like like 2000-2500 words and then I made the character reach a crossroads in his life Mm. so while doing my research I picked up like a problem area and at that crossroads he comes across path one which is like an imaginary path that I created which I think if I or someone else was in position we, that would have been a path that we very well might have taken. So it might have been something that he could have done as well, I like to believe. Yeah, of course. And then part two is actually what he did. And then what was the fallout from that particular decision. And then we come to the lasting lesson or the moral of the story, basically the moral of the fable and how we can adapt that into our own lives. And then there was a box at the end, which is just some extra interesting trivia about him. So I sent that in and I must have done something right, because they had a meeting about it, and they really liked the sample, they liked my take to it, and I got the book deal, so just basically a month after submitting my dissertation, which fell really well into place. Oh my
0: goodness, (laughs) talk about (laughs) perfect timing, that's amazing though, and you've totally hit the nail on the head, like I love the way that you have structured it, and the idea of the fable, like, in when I was reading, reading the start of your book and you were you know you're inviting the reader to jump to any chapter that you don't need to read it in order it's just very much like whatever you're drawn to you can open the book and read that person's story um and it's it's beautifully written it really is everything I've read so far I mean I've not finished it but um I'm so I'm so impressed by mm-hmm. all well, your knowledge I'm just thinking that amount of research like you're saying for that for that one person like you're talking about Steve Jobs but then it's 21 fantastic failures so the amount of research and effort that must have gone into that before, prior to even putting pen to paper
1: the the funny thing is that so like I told you each chapter is around 2000 to 2500 words but I had like different documents for each of them which was just contained the research of course. and most of those documents were as long as the actual book <laughs> Right. So the books around, um, it's somewhere between like 45 000 to 50,000 words. And the research for each person was sometimes between like 20 000 to 40,000 words wow. itself. So gathering that research from like lots of different uh, sources, I didn't want to stick to any one perspective that people had on that person. Yeah. And I went through like a lot of different kind of media formats as well. And then obviously selecting what I wanted to put in. And I made sure that I, um, got whatever fact that is present in the book i've made sure that i've got like two three sources for each fact and like reliable sources so that it's completely just like the facts are all correct and the facts are all there especially i think I was a bit nervous because like i mentioned i hadn't done nonfiction before yeah but
0: that's what i'm thinking i'm like when it's you know when it's a fictional story you can just say whatever you like you can just make up this fantastical story use your imagination let it go wild and nobody's going to question you but this is like totally other end of the, the spectrum and it's it's well-known people it's people whose name people around the world know them so yeah you must have been mm-hmm. like checking and then checking again
1: yeah I am so I think one of the you know how I was telling you that one day this is gonna like trip me up because I'm procrastinator works for me it sort of did with this book because I had just like again with the recent um example of the dissertation the experience of the dissertation where I finished writing those 20,000 fictional story that exists in my head within like three four weeks I'm like yeah that was 20,000 this book's like 40,000 you know maybe like two or three times the amount of time so I can do it in like three months for example no you can't (laughs) there was so much research involved I think 80% 80% of the time that I actually spent on this book was on research. Like when I had to get the writing done, I wrote each chapter within two days. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, because it was all in your head by that point. You'd done so much work. Yeah, It was like literally, it was just writing itself.
1: Yeah, and it's not like I was working like, you know, nine to five every single day. I was back at home in India. My visa had run out and my student visa had run out in January. Oh, yeah. Um, So I got the book deal in like September, October. I traveled for like a few other months. I went back home in January and then... Obviously, I was back home after so many months. I was relaxing, meeting everyone, just like traveling around a bit. And my uh, deadline for the book, I think, was in August. And I'm like, yeah, I could meet that. It's fine. And it wasn't because I took it a bit easily and I just realized how much work actually the book involves. Mm. So if. If I was working very religiously, which I did at the end, because I had to meet the deadline, because yeah. also I was coming back to the UK for my PhD and I couldn't do both things at the same time. If I devoted like a week to a single person or a single chapter, like five days would actually be research. Oh yeah. And two days were like writing it. The writing part never really comes hard for me. It's, it's always somehow really easy for me to find the words, which I'm very, I, fe- I feel very grateful about. But the research bit is what stripped me up. And then when I sent the entire manuscript to the publisher and I got the, man- the book, had some delays, like some internal delays at the beginning. And then obviously, because of coronavirus, it was delayed by quite a few months at the end. So I was working on the edits at the start of this year, around January and February, when I got the MS back, um, as it laid out as a PDF, I went through like another layer <laughs> of doing fact checks. Oh, gosh! Every single chapter, I'd be like, okay, birth date this, place this, parents name check, this check, sisters, brothers check, uh, this university check, this age check. Like I sat down and it was again like an entire process because I just wanted to make 100% sure that the, all the facts were correct. Um, knowing how publishing works and knowing how writing works, because I've edited books, some things will always slip through. Mm-hmm. I'm just really anxious about the day when I'm going to get a message on like Twitter or my website saying, Hey, you said this, but actually this happened. <laughs> no, I am just dreading that day. And I, and I, I am completely sure I would have got maybe like one or two things wrong. Cause that's just how writing and publishing works. Something or the other will slip through. No one is hundred percent perfect. No one's a hundred percent right. No book is a hundred percent perfect. I've sat down with so many bestsellers, which had the best editors and I will, Sometimes again, when I want to feel a bit smug, sit there with a pencil and just mark all the grammatical errors. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I've done that, and I'm, I'm sure that slipped in my book as well. I hope not. That's the hope. It
0: Sounds to me, you have been totally like meticulous. That that's like the mathematician in you. I feel like you were like applying that to your book.
1: Oh yeah. No, I love I love like Excel documents. <laughs> I love creating spreadsheets. So, I had like some really interesting color coded ones for this as well, because one of the interesting processes of this book was when we had finalized on the twenty one people like they had a few to begin with, which were like very obvious choices, and then I added in lots more mm. that list changed a bit as well because i did I did like a preliminary research about every person to see if they actually failed, it was like a very obvious failure that I could talk about oh, yeah. and whether all of the 21 people then had distinct lessons because there were some people where I'm like, "Mm, I think we have to change this because both the lessons that I'm deriving from the failures are quite similar or they're exactly the same. So then I had to find other people who could offer different lessons. So that was like another research process to begin with. So actually the first month or so was spent in doing that. And then when the list was finalized, then I could start working on them one by one. And even then, once or twice, I'm like, oh, no, I should have done some more research in the beginning, because again, the lessons are coming out to be quite similar. So that was like another yeah, little heart attack problem, <laughs> but but thankfully solved through it. So yeah, my parents asked me, they're like, oh, yeah, you should be pumping out these like nonfiction books. You've gotten so good at it, like one a year.
0: I'm like, no. Like, not <laughs> on your nearly too much work. <laughs>
1: It is it is a lot of work. It's yeah.
0: But it has like paid off though, I have to say, like Sonali is it is a brilliant book. I'm thoroughly enjoy joining reading it. I think um for a long time after university I kind of boycotted any books mm-hmm. and wasn't reading. I think it was just like, right, I'm done with reading. You know yeah. you know how many books you have to read it when You're doing an English degree. And then when I went back to books, I'm very much drawn to biographies and real life stories uh-huh. and self-help books. That's kind of my go-to rather than fiction. Um, but I really like I'm I'm saying, I just like the way that you've structured it and the, the idea of like the lessons learned, and that's exactly what you did in that workshop that day. You got us to write down what we would deem failures and then the lessons learned. And I think everybody in the workshop decided to keep the lessons learned over the failures and you know I've just been a fan of the idea of failure for for quite some time. I listened to a podcast, How to Fail. Mm-hmm. Um and a friend of mine started a podcast on lockdown called Women Who Fail. And I think, yeah, like I have actually got a quote of yours down here and it's um success is impossible for someone who doesn't make an attempt. That was your section yeah. on Julia Childs. And I'm just like, yeah, absolutely. Like I think we all have an innate fear of doing something wrong or feel like you're talking about if someone emails you one day and says you have got this wrong (laughs) but it's almost like like you're saying we have to fall over those humble uh, hurdles we have to stumble we have to make mistakes in order to learn whose story out of those 21 really has stayed with you I mean gosh you must just feel like you're in their, everyone's head. Yeah, <laughs> you studied them that much, but is there one particular story that just really stays with you for whatever particular reason?
1: Yeah, it's oddly now like asking me as if like to choose among my children. <laughs> to be honest. <laughs>
0: A bit. Well, maybe, maybe just today then, what would we say today? Who's kind of jumping into your head? Um, I
1: think maybe like Vincent Van Gogh and Lady Gaga, to be honest. Yes. Um, Van Gogh, although has like a very interesting life story and quite a sad one as well. I enjoyed researching about him because I genuinely uh, have always uh, really uh, liked his paintings too. He's among my favourite painters, The Starry Nights, like my go-to painting, if I want to decorate a room or anything. But I remember while researching about him, I hit like on a little gem myself, which I was pretty proud of. And I think I had written in his chapter that we work for three reasons. One is um, to do good for others, to like help society. The other is to earn money. And the third is because we enjoy it. And obviously lucky are those who can combine all three into one job. But it's usually pretty hard to do that. And I've been thinking a lot about this. And we so- spoke about this in the beginning as well, that the arts don't really pay. And I had, I had to have this conversation with my parents when I was at school, when I was at university, because I scored well on tests. They were pretty sure that if I tried for engineering or like medical school or an MBA or something, I would score well and I could do those courses, which I probably could have. But I wouldn't have enjoyed them. And while I do love material possessions, I'm not saying that I'm some saint that doesn't need things in her life. No, no. I like like having my gadgets. I like shopping. I like my whatever food and like having nice food and stuff. But to me, enjoying work actually does come first. Yeah. And I always try to combine that with helping others and supporting others which is why my friends and I, during our masters, created this project called The Selkie, which is um, an online magazine that supports underrepresented voices. It was founded within Edinburgh, actually. So it has all these Scottish roots. And we're now in the second year of it. It's doing really well. We've launched two anthologies online. We have like lots of material online if anyone wants to check it out it's called the selkie.co.uk yeah i'll
0: include that link in the show notes
1: and we've also received funding from uh calgary arts and development in canada to do a funded anthology so for the first time we're able to pay our writers That's as amazing. well and we're also doing um i applied for book week scotland funding and we're doing workshops in november We'll open registrations for it this month. So please do check out the website. It'll be great. We have some great uh, conductors um, involved. We'll release the names pretty soon for that. So that's another passion project where I could combine writing and art, which is something I'm passionate about and I love, with helping and supporting others. And this is completely voluntary work on all, all our part. So this is something we do along with our main career or our main mm. studies, you know.
0: But as much as you're saying, like, you know, th- that, that definitely will feed back into your own writing because just those experiences of helping others and sharing stories and connecting with people and, and sharing your knowledge, like where you are at in your career and everything that you've been able to do. Like you were saying, you have something that you can offer others and it's just giving someone a hand up, a help up. Sometimes for some people, they just need someone else to say, to give them permission. And I think it's wonderful that you've started that because that will absolutely just be given so many people the confidence boost.
1: Yeah, along with like the permission thing, which I agree with you, Um, there's also like other things where we have these uh, free online workshops, uh, which we sometimes do on. Uh, and then we also have like paid workshops that we started if you want like really intense feedback from some editors. But we also like our board and the founders come from very diverse backgrounds. You also need someone to tell you that you're valid and that you will be read and that you will be heard 100% because lots of the times when you apply for different submissions you find if you go do a little like click through mm-hmm. the people who are looking at the submissions they tend to be you know i'm going to be blunt here but like maybe like older white men yeah and you end up thinking ah oh, will they really get my work will they think my voice or my content is valid something that others might want to read because lots of the times that because it's, it's such a subjective thing as well because if that particular judge or deciding whatever the voter person can't personally relate to it they might not go with your story whereas we come from diverse backgrounds and we are also reading submissions with that eye that this may not be my experience but this probably needs a platform absolutely and I think just seeing our page or about page where you can see such diverse faces on that little web page you might feel a bit more someone might feel a bit more comfortable submitting their work to of us of course
0: yeah no that's that's wonderful I'm really impressed that you've been able to do that on top of everything else I mean you're writing books you're doing a PhD <laughs> you're also the the chair of the Society of Young Publishers in Scotland is that right yeah that is have true. You, uh, oh, invented like, cool. like an eighth day of the week that I don't know about Sonali
1: oh my secret is that I have like a few clones sitting around <laughs> anyway, you know? this
0: is the thing <laughs>
1: it's weird, this is also why I mentioned that I like the Lady Gaga chapter because I kind of relate to it, is that I'm a perfectionist and I want to do everything. I am extremely greedy and I am, uh, like, her chapter really related with because her, in quotes, failure isn't actually, it isn't like a conventional failure where, you know, she, she took the wrong decision at some point. It's because she was too hard on herself. Mm. She spread herself too thin. And on top of that, society had failed her. She has been the victim of violence among the industry, like within the entertainment industry. She tried speaking about, up about it with some powerful people. None of them supported her. It affected her mental health issues. She already had or was like diagnosed with fibromyalgia and it, that has roots, like there's still research happening within that, that has roots with like mental health issues as well. So she gets these like chronic pain um, fits yeah. when also when she's like extremely stressed or she's like spread herself too thin. And I kind of related with that. Um, I don't have fibromyalgia, but I do get extremely anxious and I do get stressed out a lot. I did have like a teeny tiny panic attack while working on this book and doing like five other projects. It's it's I I'm not kind to myself all the time, and that's the lasting lesson from Lady Gaga's chapter is that be kind to yourself.
0: So true, so true. You're speaking so much sense to me. Like, someone, <laughs> I think just as like anyone who creates anything we get so invested like you're saying and you're you you are a perfectionist and that and then that that almost like jars sometimes with the the procrastination or leaving things to last minute you're like how can I be a perfectionist but I'm doing this and oh I'll never learn and then just the voice in your head like you're saying about Lady Gaga like being kinder to yourself like it can be all consuming because you just want to do the best job and I think like you know thinking about someone like Lady Gaga it's almost like she's not real but you're like We put these people on a a pedestal and understandably, you know, they're in the public eye, but essentially they're just human beings and no one can escape failure and no one can escape all these things that you're talking about. Like we're all subject to our own minds and the pressures of Mm -hmm. the industries that we're involved in. And yeah, I think just taking that nugget of wisdom from anybody's story, that everybody's story is relevant and relative and what you would deem a failure other people would be like well that's not a failure that's nothing but Mm. if if it's a failure to you then it's important
1: yeah it depends on like people's priorities and I guess I think we're also a bit harder on ourselves than anyone else would Mm. be yeah I I had like a I guess like a teeny tiny failure or like something related to Lady Gaga chapter during COVID the lockdown as well because I haven't seen my family in over a year and that's the longest I've Gosh. gone without seeing them or visiting my family or my dog who oh, so I'm much. I'm so sorry. Yeah. And like video calls would only do so much, of right? Of course. Um, also, I'm extremely thankful that I'm able to exist within this day when I can just give them a video call whenever yeah. I want, but not whenever I want. There's a time difference to account for, but yeah. Um. So this was in, I want to say May. So like a few months within the lockdown and it was kind of getting to me, I was extremely anxious and scared about catching the disease. So I wasn't really stepping out. Plus I had some PhD deadlines, plus I hadn't seen my family and like some other stuff was going on. And I remember it was the day for like my submission to my uh, supervisors and I was almost done. It was like two hours more work, which I could have done. But I just had like a teeny tiny breakdown where I just started bawling and crying and even... I was just I just decided to like write to my supervisors and tell them that I'm I need a few yeah. weeks off I can't do this so even while compiling that email I couldn't really reach for the words which like I've told you through this whole thing that words come very easy to me it was,
0: That's not you. It was ex- yeah. I
1: couldn't think of very basic words it's just my mind was just so exhausted it just felt a bit frozen and my supervisors were extremely kind, extremely nice and accommodating. This, said, of course, take time off. We understand this time is hard for everyone. It's okay. You're doing fine when it comes to like, the overall um, schedule and timeline, like you will be fine. Don't worry about it. If you need an extension, we can look at that. We, they were really nice. And again, that's a matter of privilege because I know for a fact that's not something I could have done in India because mental health is not really talked about or taken wow. seriously and it's like, disparaged against in India, right. and I've worked at like very high stress jobs where sometimes I had to be in fourteen hours a day. I had to go in on the weekend. This is without like any overtime or anything. Jeez, oh. Yeah, sometimes when I wanted to take an off from work because I was so mentally exhausted, I had to make up like a physical, like disease physical illness excuse. Be wow. like, yeah, I've got like diarrhea. I don't know. I've got like a high fever. I've got a cough. Gosh. Yeah, so you have to make up excuses that you have like some physical illness because that will be taken a lot more seriously than I can't today. Like I'm exhausted. I I need a few days to myself or I need a day to myself. You can't say that within India. So again, I know that's a matter of privilege, but I could actually say that to my supervisors and I was taken seriously. And
0: I wonder, did you like at that moment when you're like, when you're trying to formulate that email, because you, were brought up in India, were you struggling with that idea of I am making this an in inverse commons excuse to them and they're going to see that as a failure? And will I be a failure? And maybe I should make up something like I, it's su- such a brave thing to do when you've maybe been conditioned to think, Well, I, I need to make something up, I have to tell a lie, I have to say that I've got something physically wrong with me mm. because of. You were brought up in India and that's just what happens there because like you're saying mental health isn't
1: understood. There was definitely like a weird duality inside me because I have been engaging with friends whether in India or here who do have mental health stuff and they talk openly about it and I obviously don't disparage against someone who does have mental health stuff. I try to talk to them openly as well. So that's something that I've kind of learned myself, like actively i have gone and Mm. learned this thing because we won't talk about it. But there was like a teeny tiny part of me that was saying, "Ah," you know, you really could do it. You could just like sit in a corner and cry for like half an hour and then come back to this. But you
0: absolutely did the right thing. You absolutely did the right thing. Like you, you recognised that you needed that time and that you were going through a lot of stuff that was really upsetting so like uh, kudos yeah. to you like i'm so impressed by you that you did do the right thing for yourself and that you got the response that you definitely deserved that's that's exactly how you should be treated that you should be told that this is absolutely fine and that your mental health is just as important as your physical health we all have mental health yeah. and everybody goes through spells where. are you just need time and you need to stop what you're doing and you have to look after yourself just like you would if you had a broken leg yeah
1: exactly and you don't have to be diagnosed with like a chronic issue of course not like luckily again I don't suffer from like bouts of anxiety as such like I don't have to take I don't believe I have to take any medication I don't believe I have to speak like a therapist or anything but there will be times when things get too much of course you know and my brain will get tired my brain will need a break and it's completely fine and it should be normalized.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, we all need to take like a moment sometimes and just stop and take a breath. Yeah, and that's kind of what I try
1: to talk about yeah. in Lady Gaga chapter. And honestly, like write, researching and writing this book, I have learned a lot myself. There were like lots of like aha moments in my own brain when I was trying to derive the lessons. Mm. And just thinking yeah if I'm talking about this with others I should maybe try to (laughs) absorb this into my own life so it's been like a huge learning experience just like researching and writing this book too because again I at no point will say that any of these people within the book need to be placed on a pedestal that they're perfect that they're supposed to be idolized or idealized I don't think anyone should be because we're all human we all fail yeah and some of them might have done like some sketchy things as well, whatever. That's aside. I'm not here to like dissect their characters at any point. No. I just present their biography to like give you some sort of context before I can actually zone in the moment of failure. Of
0: course. I, I think even from that day when you did that exercise and I wrote down, I mean, I didn't have enough pay- paper for the amount of failures I wanted to write <laughs> down, but just that, yeah, it's almost like this wee light bulb, this epiphany where you're like, gosh like you shouldn't really have any regrets about things that have gone wrong because they they Mm. massively teach you so much about who you are and who you can be and about things that you just wouldn't have realized otherwise if you hadn't failed if you hadn't went over that hurdle or tripped up at that moment um it's such a gift actually to fail a lot of the time
1: yeah no I think I mentioned this during that workshop as well I think um is that my mom has this attribute whenever we do fumble, whenever we do fail, we do something wrong immediately she'd wanna discuss, okay, so what have we learned now? Like, yeah, you know, this is a to- lesson let's not do this again and at that point on, like it's annoyed me my entire life because <laughs> I'm the kind of person who just wants to just like put it past me just like sweep it under the rug' Yes. Whenever I do think about my past mistakes, like my blood boils and I get so mad at myself. I'm like, Sonali, you are not supposed to fail. You're supposed to be perfect all the time. How could you do that? Whereas with her, she immediately just wants to learn the lesson, which obviously as I've grown older, I've learned to appreciate that. And I try to do that now because I think it's a lot more constructive as well you know like it's done what are you going to do about totally. it you can't like step into your TARDIS or whatever go back in time
0: and change things you know it's so annoying when your parents are right in it oh
1: so annoying and she's going to listen to this podcast as well and come back to me so smug you have no idea
0: well she had to redeem herself because she did say like she read one page of a book and then fell asleep so we <laughs> <laughs> had to redeem her for sure but no that that's the resounding thing from your from your book is just that those lessons are really important and um yeah it might be tough to look at your own failures face on but um in doing so you can absolutely move forward in a more positive way and that's i think that's just like the the biggest message from from your book I, i totally love it and i i just congratulate you i hope i hope it gets all the success it deserves
1: oh thank you so much that's really kind
0: so what are you working on now what's
1: happening well um i have two projects in mind one i've actually sent a pitch for it's like a non-fiction thing and again i know i know i know
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> So, like i did not learn from the first time when it was all that work yeah.
1: no, but this but this pitch is actually related to my phd right
0: okay tell me about that
1: so my PhD, I'm doing it on, uh, in the field of publishing studies at the University of Stirling. And it's great. My supervisors, like I mentioned, are amazing. Mm. And so I'm looking at the neo-colonial impact of British publishing upon Indian publishing right. because there's something called Commonwealth Rights, which allows um, British publishers to distribute their books either through any tie-ups they've done with other companies or local subsidiaries they've set okay. up. So, anything that's published within London, for example, will automatically reach India. Whereas, if the Indian subsidiary of the same company publishes something in India, it will not automatically reach London or New York wow. or any other parts of the world. They have to do these extra steps of trying to sell rights. And it's weird. Like, I would sort of maybe understand if, like, my publisher, for example, uh, for, my, for 21 Fantastic Failures, is an Indian publisher, so they don't have um, their subsidiaries internationally. Mm-hmm. So, although they bought world rights from me, the printed book isn't easily available outside India. I think Amazon will do like a print on demand at some point. Right now, the ebook is available in the UK, US, whatever. Yeah. But the printed book is available right now only within India. But even if I had published with like the big five in India, my book still wouldn't really have been available maybe outside the Indian subcontinent, yeah. which includes like Pakistan and Sri Lanka and all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like You wouldn't have got the printed book within the UK still, which is such an odd concept to me. Oh, yes. about it. So the side effect of that is that I, for example, have grown up reading foreign literature my entire life. I think before I did that one paper, like, out of the nine papers that I had in my undergrad uni, I had, like, one on Indian writing. Before that, I think I only read one book by an Indian author my entire life. I only read books by, like, British and American authors. And I read about characters and contexts way removed from my own experiences, my own life. Like, these books told me that, you know, women with, like, blonde hair, fair skin, blue eyes were... The epitome of beauty and people who looked like me in the books were actually the witches or the villains That's mental. so it makes you kind of like one of the side effects is it makes you kind of like racist against your own kind which is why like i said there's this whole hang-up about the english language in india there's also like a hang-up about having fair skin in india so we are racist amongst our own kind these are all like neo, like post-colonial and neo-colonial impact from the empire and how the power is structured today within culture and media. So that's what
0: I'm studying for my PhD. You've opened my eyes. Like that's a total education right there. Like I just had no idea.
1: Yeah. And it's one of the reasons, I mean, I'm personally invested in the topic as well, just as an Indian writer, because I would love for my writing, whether I publish with an Indian author to be available internationally, right? Because there are fewer chances of like winning prizes of like global acclaim. If you, are only restricted to one like national like one national like borders because yeah. everyone follows the trends on like what's selling what's like you know the times New, like the New York Times bestseller list or different your international literary prizes it's only like a few author, Indian authors or authors of Indian origin who've broken into those and most of the time they don't even reside in India any longer and they actually do publish outside India go
0: cool, yeah so
1: that's why they're able to appear on these lists so it's not to say that there isn't good writing being done within India or even you know like different parts of Africa or like China Canada Australia like I did like a little bit of research on them as well and they also do feel similar effects so it's not just India that's facing this although my research is focused on India because You know, one PhD—that's enough for like one topic, and it's where I come from. It's the connection; it's the place I have the most connections with.
0: It seems like a ma- mammoth topic to to delve into, but very worthwhile. And I'm interested to see where that takes you and, and what you produce in the process. Yes,
1: yeah, so it's really interesting. So the nonfiction book that I've pitched to someone is actually to present this entire topic in kind of like an accessible way to like normal readers. Because um, let's see if anything comes of that. I don't know yet. Um, <laughs> And the other project that's been on hold, poor thing, for over a year, for two years, actually, sorry, for two years, it's my novel that I was talking about, which I wrote my dissertation on. Yes. So I'm like halfway through the first draft. And I still, even like two years later, I still love the plot and the characters, the story. I'm not so fond of the writing anymore, because I feel like every time I look at it, my writing is improved, and I think I can do better. (laughs) But I want to force myself to just finish the first draft. So I have to do, pick up from like the half point to the end. I know what happens in my head. I just need to get it on on paper. So I'm just going to finish the first draft. And then I can go back and rewrite the first half again. Yeah, I'd love to like start shopping that book around sometime next year. So that's like a major project that I want to deal with. Because 21 Fantastic Failures will always be my first book. And I will always be happy for this big break. Yes. But it's not my novel you know like I've always wanted to be a fiction writer I've always wanted to write fantasy and that's what that book is about that's what my novel is about so I'm really excited to like get that done and I think I'm more scared of writing that than I was about 21 fantastic failures because I didn't have expectations of myself already in my head regarding nonfiction. so this is a new experience so even if i was like failing you know in quotes failing like every day a bit it was fine because i didn't have any preconceived notions of how i would be as a nonfiction mm-hmm. writer
0: right Go. yeah yeah
1: whereas with my novel cuz it's something i've dreamed of doing my entire life i'm so scared of getting my hands on the keyboard keys and just getting that down cuz i don't know i have so many so many hopes and aspirations for that book and I'm really scared about it as well because, yeah, it's it's that's my baby, that's my that's my project. I,
0: I totally understand that, but I think you just have to trust yourself and just. It's almost like I was speaking to someone another week there about songwriting, mm-hmm. and their um, tutor at college had said to them, "Just put your fingers on the keys and waggle them about." <laughs> and they were talking about the piano keys, but that to me sounds like great advice in terms of like writing. Yeah. I think you just have to you know words have always come to you easily Mm -hmm. and I think once you just sit down at that computer it will just flow and uh, yeah don't don't put too much pressure on yourself because you're you're creating great things and everything all the experiences and all the effort and energy that you've put into your writing so far will just help it to soar I'm I'm So impressed by you, and I'm (laughs) delighted to to be chatting to you at this point in your career. It'll be exciting to see. I think we'll need to do another podcast episode in a couple of years' time. (laughs) That
1: would be great.
0: When that book's finished. (laughs) Yeah, that would be. Remember when you said you were dreading writing this, and then it became a bestseller.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I can come back and listen to how I felt at this moment in time.
0: There you go. See, we've captured it for all time. Yeah. (laughs) Now, I didn't tell you about this bit, but I do a thing called The Thingamabobs. And this was just an idea to ask my guests at the end um, a few random questions. Okay, sure. um, Just to get to know them a bit better. So, number one on the list, there's like 70-odd. I'm not going to ask you 70 questions. (laughs) But number one, actually, is if you were to write an autobiography, what would the title be? Now, obviously, this this can change. This would maybe change tomorrow. But if you were to think dream up a title at this moment in time what would it be
1: oh uh, okay just like a weird thing came in my name I would say so you know how my last name is Misra right mm-hmm. I would make it something like Miss Roar or something that I'm just like roaring like a lion <laughs> I don't know that just popped in my head I don't know <laughs>
0: okay. yes write that down <laughs> right in there okay are you a morning person or a night owl
1: Ah, oh, definitely a night owl. Like I, 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 when I do somehow get up in the morning, I love it. And my days seem so long and productive, but oh, just something about the nighttime, everyone being asleep, and I'm the only one awake. <laughs> it's just something like I, I think I like just like haunting like a ghost. Even in my some in the new flat now, with was just one other flatmate. But for a year, I was with four other flatmates and a dog. And I would just be up at like 2 a.m. making myself tea, just going down to the kitchen, <laughs> making myself a tea, like maybe heating up like a brownie and going back to my bed and watching things, reading things.
0: Yeah. Well, here's one. Best day you've ever had? Oh, this is a tough one.
1: I think the one that's popping into my head right now, which probably wasn't the best best they have had but it just kind of like stands out is i remember being in london with my mom this is when you we were traveling this is right after the isle of butte yes and we were on the tower bridge mm-hmm. when i got an email saying that my dissertation like my final results have been announced and i actually didn't do that well within the first and second semester i was doing well on the essays like the literature essays because that's something i had done before yeah but the creative writing bit actually wasn't doing so well. I was kind of like middling in the class. And I was really astonished by everyone's writing skills and their experiences. So I was really nervous about this one. And this was, again, the dissertation, my novel, like my baby. So I had like a lot of trouble opening up the result on my phone. And I finally opened it. And I'm like, no, nah, no, nah, that can't be res- my results So I like reopened it. And it was actually uh, 78 on my dissertation. Yeah, was I think like among the highest scores in class. I think one person got like an eighty or something. So it was like the second highest in fiction. And I, I have this like really nice picture where I have I'm just like standing and like smiling with my hands raised up in the air. And my mom's taking this picture on Tower Bridge, Aww. which is when I got the result and kind of like made the whole degree. Not like, I don't want to say like worth it because I did learn everything, but it's obviously really nice to have that validated as well, right?
0: I will take that high score and I will. Thank you so much. Yeah. And the last question that I ask everyone on the podcast, and it's to do with words because they are my favourite, is what is your favourite Scottish word or phrase?
1: Oh, uh, I've been learning quite a bit because um, my flatmate is Scottish. Mm-hmm. I did look abroad today, which I really like as well. And I lo- I love I'm I'm a fan of like alliteration anyway, so I'm like, yeah, this is this is like a really cool name for a podcast. Thanks. I also really like the sound of Gleckett.
0: <gasps> yes, Glikit.
1: I wrote this like story set in Edinburgh during my masters and I wanted to just introduce like one or two lines in Scots. Yes. So I actually went to my friend who is Scottish and I had a line for him and I sort of I had already written it in Scots, but I obviously needed his eye over it because I wasn't completely sure. So he did correct it a little bit. I had, I think, learned the word Gleket be- because of him. So I put it in there and he's like, yeah, yeah, that's used correctly. I'm like, yes.
0: <laughs> well, to be fair, if we're talking about failures, I'm sure I've had many a at moment. <laughs> 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 I cannot thank you enough for doing this episode of the brawn the brave it has been an absolute joy and it has been an education and i am just so excited to see what you got up to next um like i say i'm totally on you but i i'm so <laughs> impressed with everything you've you've done so far
1: Thank you so much. This was really fun. It was a great way to start the week as well. Yeah, totally.
0: Absolutely. That's how I feel about it. So thank you so much. I, I actually feel really inspired after I talk today. So hopefully
1: I might start the
0: restart the novel again. Let's see. Nice one. <laughs> Love it. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of The and The Brave, a podcast about people and their passions. Join us next time for more insight and inspiration from my wonderful guests. Bye for now.